You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are glad that you're here. So let me tell you, every year we do this couples retreat uh, for the couples at Calvary. It's one of my favorite things that we do. And we're doing one this year, if you want to be part of it. Um, That's not really a sales pitch. It's just we're doing it. It's almost sold out. So if you're interested, do it before. Anyway, you can. But one of the things that I love about the couples retreat that we do has nothing to do with the retreat. It has to do with the fact that there's usually other groups doing events. And I'm always fascinated by the other groups that are there. And one year, we uh, were doing our retreat, and on the same floor as us, right next to us, there was another group. It was a Jewish speed dating group, which, sat, which is as awesome as it sounds. Uh, they were there doing their thing, and they were single and ready to mingle. And... Um, now, because there was a Jewish group at the hotel, the, the hotel took one of the elevators on Friday night and made it a Sabbath elevator. And if you're not aware what, the Sabbath, what a Sabbath elevator is, that's an elevator that you don't have to push any buttons. It, it, every, it stops at every floor, the doors open automatically, and then it goes up uh, to every floor, opens, closes, and then it goes down automatically. So it just does that. Uh, all night until Saturday evening. <clears throat> and the, way, the reason for that is so that a person doesn't have to violate the Sabbath because, uh, once again, in an Orthodox home, pushing, the pushing of a button would be a Sabbath violation. Apparently, speed dating is not a violation, but that's probably a different sermon. Um, so anyway, Carrie and I get on an elevator when we're there. We didn't even realize that there was a Sabbath elevator. And so we're, we're, we get in and... Um, Right when the door's about to close, about 15 young single Jewish men walk onto the elevator as well, and the door's closed. So now I'm on one side of the elevator, and my wife is on the other. And my wife, being the nice person that she is, she says to everyone, Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and, uh, which means, you know, peace on the Sabbath. And that being said, every guy in the elevator just turns towards her. And you don't need to be a mind reader to know what they were thinking. And they're like, you know, who's this shiksa? Um... <laughs> Do you know what a shiksa is? Some of you, okay, a shiksa, that's a, um, that's a Yiddish word that means a hot Gentile woman. And uh, so they, who's this shiksa giving us the traditional Sabbath greeting? So the guys start talking to her and she talks, you know, and my wife is so innocent, she doesn't realize what's happening. Um, she's talking about how she's been to Israel. There was a Sabbath elevator when she was in Jerusalem and these guys are falling over themselves asking questions about her life and what, 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 are, what, what are her likes and dislikes and what's her favorite time of year for a wedding. And, um, and so, and I'm trying to insert myself into the conversation and it's not working. And, uh, and by the way, and I'm waiting, now this is going on and on and I'm just like, when are we going to, is my, is my, am I like on the, on the moon somewhere where my, my hotel room is? It's like the 80th floor or something. I don't know what's happening. Finally, the door opens to our floor and I reach through, I grab her by the hand. I'm like, Hey, this is the Gentile floor. We got to go. And, uh, and I got us out of there. Cause I don't know what would have happened if we stayed any longer. And I appreciate those guys recognizing the obvious that my wife is strikingly beautiful and way better looking than any of the girls at that meat market that they were part of. And um, 
But I was trying to tell them when I was like, hey, she's not for you. She's taken. And they just, my voice was drowned out by their hearts pounding every time my wife said a word in Hebrew. And, uh, and, and, and listen, I get it. I get it. That these guys are all looking to fall in love because they want their own happily ever after. And it's what everybody wants. And the problem is, is that you get married, and when we talk about happily ever after, and we've been saying this throughout the series, X's knows that we started, is that sometimes we think that getting together, we found the person, we got together, and that, now the hard part is over. Fall in love is the easy part. It's the staying in love that's the more challenging part. Because there's a part of falling in love and staying in love and being in love that people didn't tell us about, and that was that there was going to be conflict and there was going to be problems. When you're dating, it's easy. You go out, you have fun, and, and you're, as a guy, spending way more money than you should because you're trying to impress her. That's the easy part. The hard part is like when you get married, that's when real life shows up, and there's bills and obligations. There's in-laws. Some of you have outlaws. And, um, and so, and there's this all kinds of drama uh, in, in your marriage. You get into arguments, and the problem is when there's conflict, the problem is for a lot of us, no one taught us how to have good conflict. We were only taught go for the jugular conflict. And so we say hurtful things because we're trying to win, not realizing that when we say things and then kind of calm down, there's accountability afterwards for the things that were said. So in part three of this series that we've been doing on, on marriage and relationships, I want to talk about fighting fair and how to have conflict in such a way that it really does end up strengthening your marriage. And I thought the best way to talk about conflict is for us to watch one. And so I want to drop us into an area of scripture where it's a beautiful love story, but it's a couple having an argument. It's an ancient song in the Old Testament that's called the Song of Solomon. It was written by King Solomon. The book is written like a play, and it covers from the beginning of when this couple meet, fall in love, get married, their wedding night, all the way to the end of the book where they're older looking back on their lives. But the section we're going to drop into is after they're married and they're having an argument. And the important thing is, that's important for us to understand, is that every couple has conflict. The only couples who don't have conflict are couples who lie about it. But everybody has conflict. But what we're going to talk about is how conflict can actually help. We're going to talk about how to reduce it. But we're also going to talk about when you're in conflict, uh, how do we resolve it. Uh, because when a couple does resolve conflict well, it actually strengthens their relationship and draws them closer. So we're going to start in Song of Solomon chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 2, and here's what we read. The Shulamite, who is um, the wife of Solomon, she says this. She says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. Like, all right, buddy, you're laying it on thick. Um, for my head is covered in dew and my locks with the drops of the night. Okay. And, uh, and this is her response. I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? If you pause there and give me your attention. Um, this is the beginnings of something. But the first thing we got to realize when we talk about conflict, here's rule of conflict number one, and that is pick your battles. Now, let me give you a kind of a basic outline of Song of Solomon to where we are here. They meet in chapter one. They fall in love in chapter two. They get married in chapter three. They have their uh, wedding night in chapter four. And now they're in an argument, which seems like a fairly good pattern for marriage. And so now, but this is the beginnings of an argument. When she says, I'm asleep, but my heart is awake, that is, I'm laying in bed worried. Why? Because Solomon is out late. She doesn't know where he is. 
He's not, pick, she's not, he's not answering her texts. And so she doesn't know what's going on. And then he shows up and he's like, hey, I'm all sweaty because I've been working late. But she decides not to open uh, the door to her bedroom. Now, it, was, it wasn't uncommon for couples to have separate bedrooms in that culture. But she complains that I'm not opening, I'm ready for bed, it's too late for them to be together. And this is where the fight begins. Now, I've put on my robe and I've washed my feet is basically the Middle Eastern way of saying, honey, I'm sorry, not tonight, I have a headache. And so, now, this may be a good reason to get into an argument, it may not, but you got to decide if it's a battle worth fighting. And if it is, then fight fair, and if it's not, then let it go. And here's why. In the book of Proverbs, which, by the way, was also written by Solomon, Solomon says, an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. One of the things that we have to decide and figure out in our marriages, and really in any relationship, and this is not just true for marriage, it's true for friendships and, you know, any kind of familial relationship, is you have to learn the difference between conviction and preference, And the problem is, there are some things that are life and death, right or wrong, other issues that aren't that, they're just issues of preference. What happens is, is that when couples make issues of preference a life or death thing, that's when there's a problem. When my wife and I were first married, I couldn't believe how she treated the toothpaste. I I really, I was in shock. She, every time I would walk into the bathroom to brush my teeth, the toothpaste tube looked like it had been choked to death like a crime of passion. And now let me just tell you how I deal with toothpaste. I'm one of these guys who systematically moves from the back of the tube to the front of the tube, like the Bible says. And so, and and because I also want to live in a civilized society, but we only had one tube. And every time I, I went to brush my teeth, I was trying to resuscitate the tube after the strangulation. And and, and you know what? And I realized this, and, and, and I remember her time, I'm like, woman, what are you doing? She's like, Bob, I'm just getting toothpaste. I'm like, no, you're murdering the toothpaste. Getting the toothpaste. And I remember, I'm like, I'm going to fix this. So I bought this little plastic clip, and then you kind of start rolling the toothpaste. First of all, where was this all my life? And I just start kind of rolling it, and, and she's like, that is such a waste of money. I'm like, not a waste of money. I'm actually getting all the toothpaste out of the tube. When you're just, you know, choking it to death, you're, you're, there's all kinds of wasted uh, bubbles and whatnot. Anyway, so you know what we did? And I realized, like, this is not worth it. We just bought one of those pumps that dispensed toothpaste, and then no more toothpaste tubes were murdered. And that was the end of that. Now, this is kind of a common argument, but let me ask you this question. There's some people um, who believe that a toilet paper roll... Now, let me just tell you something that happened at 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock went nuts. This was their moment. Apparently, there was like some pent-up frustration because they were going for it. And I was like, oh, it's going to be like that. And so anyway, so, all right. So, okay, let me just move on. So there's some people who believe that this is how, you know, the over-the-top of the role. I'm not even going to ask. Once again, I, I, I didn't even ask. I said, I'm not going to ask. And 11 o'clock went crazy to show their support for this over-the-top. All right? But I'm not asking. Instead, so I, anyway, and then, this is the, then there's other people who want to go this route. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. This is 11 o'clock all over again. So it's going to be like that. So now, and there's people that are having arguments. There are people who have gotten too 
uh, toilet paper spindles installed so they can have one going under and one going over. And I'm, I'm just like, what, okay, if you want to do that, and that's going to reduce the conflict, but you know, this is, how, this is how you reduce the conflict, all right? Let me show you this picture. This is the U.S. patent, 1891, the toilet paper roll. This is the end of the argument. So if you have this, if you have this argument in your home, you take a picture of this, and you show your spouse, you're just like, honey, it's over. It's over. And if after seeing this, the patent, this is what the maker wanted. When, this is what he wanted. He, he, is, I, he wouldn't even want to know about this underneath thing. But you know, it's like, well, what if my spouse, even they still want to do it underneath? And I'm, I don't know what to tell you. Some people just want to watch the world burn. You know, people just like that. And so now, men and women are different. Men and women are different, and there's bound to be conflict, but you've got to decide what things you can live with and what things are worth the conflict. Now, every study that's done on marriage boils it down to three issues. There's kind of three big buckets that almost all marital conflict fall into, and it falls into communication, money, and sex. Those are the three things, and, and I, the guys in the room, they're like, what? something, something, sex, is that what I heard? And uh, this guy's anointed. And uh, now, but the goal is, these are the issues, but... Your goal, and I know sometimes we think that, like if my wife were just like me, if my husband were more like me, your goal isn't to turn your spouse into you. Uh, your goal isn't for you to become more like your spouse. Your goal is for both of you to be transformed by the power of God to be more like Jesus. And listen, now, why? because people are, are different. Now, let me just tell you something, and you know this to be the case. And every service I've said this, and every, every service has agreed, so don't, don't, you know, we're on a streak here. Every one of us has a friend, that, a couple that we're friends with. We don't say this to them. We say this about them after they leave our house, all right? But we're like, how in the world did those two people get together, right? You have a friend like that, a couple like that? Yeah, all of us. We all have a couple, and if you don't, it's you, by the way. And uh, <laughs> this is what we're saying about you when you leave. Uh, and so, but we all have that. We're like, how in the world did those two people get together, and it's because opposites attract. The problem is after marriage, opposites attack. And that's where kind of the challenge comes. And so now, if you want your marriage to be full of joy, and I know that's what you want, that's what all of us want, you've got to learn to celebrate your differences and see them as a blessing and not as a curse. When um, Solomon and the Shulamite meet, the thing that she says about him in chapter 1, look at what it says in, in Solomon's, Song of Solomon 1, verse 3. She says this. She says, how pleasing is your fragrance. Your name is like the spreading fragrance of scented oils. No wonder all the young women love you. This is, this is what she says of him. She's like, I just even got near you, and I could just smell that. Like, what was that? Is that old spice? It's like, well, it was back then, so it was probably just called spice uh, back then. And... Uh, but then, here's what happens, is that now in chapter 4, look what she says about him. He says, how, or this is what he says about her. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse? How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices? Listen, it's like they are even saying that their scents are wonderful, but they're different. And we have to learn to not just accept it, but celebrate it. And then deal with the conflict as it arises. And so now, remember, he shows up. She's worried that he's out late, and he's like, hey, 
I'm at the door, and she's like, well, you know, I can't get my feet dirty. So here's what happens. In verse 4, she says, My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leapt when he spoke. I sought him but could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. If you can pause there and give me your attention. Here's the second thing when we talk about rules of conflict. Number two is understand your spouse. So what happens here in the story? She says no to him, and then she says, you know, maybe I was being a little over the top. She gets up to open the door, and when she does, by that time, he's gone. Now, him leaving, not good. Now, I... Her saying, I'm not getting up, that's being a little over the top. But once again, instead of saying, hey, we got to kind of deal with this as grownups, they just start reacting to each other. And this is the problem. It's not a good situation. And she's going to end up getting hurt in this process. And we're going to read that in just a moment. Whenever there is a pattern of immaturity or even moments of immaturity, what will happen is someone does something that, you know, your spouse does something that bothers you. And you either get to decide this. You either say, I'm going to react to this thing, and now the conflict becomes greater. Or somebody decides to be the grown-up and says, hey, come on, not like that. Let's not do that. You see, if she had set the tone and said, he gets to the door and says, honey, I get it. Tonight's not the night, but I'd still like to see you. Instead, she acts immaturely. He acts, reacts to it in an immature way by just leaving. And that's just never a recipe for a happy marriage. Uh, Diane Soli, who is the president of the Coalition for Marriage and Family, she, she said this, and I thought it was so poignant. She said this, happy couples who stay married have the same number of conflicts as those who divorce. What makes the difference is not the absence of conflict, but the ability to manage the conflict. My point is that someone has to be the grown-up and decide that you aren't going to simply react to the conflict, but you're going to deal with the conflict and diffuse it. Because they don't deal with it, she looking for Solomon. And look at what happens. Verse 7. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. Remember, she didn't want to get out of bed because her feet might get dirty. And, and, and by the way, if you're thinking, hold on, isn't she married to the king of Israel and live in a palace? I mean, how dirty could the floor possibly be in a palace well, you're probably on the right track as far as you're thinking, but that's nonetheless. She doesn't want to get her feet dirty, but now she's running out into the night looking for Solomon. The night watchmen mistake her for a prostitute because in that culture, only two people were out at this hour of the night. Women who were prostitutes and men trying to invade the city. And the way it worked in that culture, and you've got to understand, it is, it is the, the, the dark of night. So this isn't like, hey, Alexa, turn up the lights by 40%. There's none of that. It's torches and darkness. And so when the night watchmen see anyone, they start swinging first and asking questions later. And so part of diffusing conflict is understanding the other person's point. And that's, listen, that's what a grown-up does. You don't have to agree, but the hope is you can understand. Guys, we are commanded to understand our spouse. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 says it this way, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. When Peter says honor your wife, literally, here's what that means. Hold her in the highest of esteem. 
And by the way, just to deal with the thing, it's like, weaker vessel, that's sexist. Um, ladies, if you've ever asked your husband to open a jar of tomato sauce in your house, you are complying with this verse. That's really what it is. It doesn't have anything to do with superiority. It has everything to do with the fact that generally men are physically stronger than women. And I'm talking about real men and women, not men who pretend to be women. I'm talking about the real ones, okay? Just so that we're clear on that. And so, uh, thanks. Those weird things happening. But listen, because of that, listen, I believe husbands should really be chivalrous towards their wives, holding the door open for them, um, and it's not, oh, because they, you know, it's, no, it's, you know, my wife knows how to open a door. I'm, I'm positive, but I don't want her to. If I'm there, I want to hold it open for her. Any nasty stuff that needs to be done at our house, I want to be the one who, who does it. I don't remember. It's probably been years since my wife went to a gas station. And it's not because my wife doesn't know how to pump gas. She does. I just don't think she should have to. And I say this all the time, and I, I don't know that she likes it. I'm like, if the Queen of England doesn't have to do it, you don't have to do it. And, um, and so, um, so this is why, you know, like, my wife doesn't take out the garbage. I take out the garbage. Well, really, my son takes out the garbage, but I supervise. <laughs> and that counts, too. And so, <laughs> but listen, my wife is incredibly capable. But to honor her, I do those things. And by the way, someone asked me, and they said, why isn't there a command for wives to understand their husbands? I'm like, dude, because she knows you better than you know you. She doesn't even have to have the command. She already gets it. I am amazed at how my wife knows what I am feeling before I know what I'm feeling. I got a master's degree in theology yesterday. And uh, thank you. I appreciate that. I got a master's degree in theology, and I cannot explain how I'm feeling at any given moment. So I can tell you anything you want to know about the ancient uh, governmental system of the Roman Empire, but how I'm feeling, that's going to give me, I'm going to need some time. So, and it's just the weirdest thing. My wife will ask me, is it, a, is it a sharp pain or a dull pain? And I'm like, yes, it is. And she's like, no, it's one or the other. And I'm like, but it, what if it's kind of dull and kind of sharp? She's like, that's not how it works. It's either dull or sharp. I woke up one day, I, I wish I could tell you I was joking, and I'm not, and this is just how kind of out of my mind I am sometimes. I woke up with so much stomach pain, and I'm like, Kara, I think I need to go to the doctor. And she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I have the worst stomach pain. And, uh, and she's like, okay, explain it to me. And you know, I don't know words. So I'm just like trying with my feeble medical vocabulary, you know, something artery, I don't know. Are arteries in your stomach? I don't know. And so, and <laughs> so I'm trying to say something, and, uh, and she's listening. She's like, okay. I'm like, so are we going to go to the doctor? She's like, no. You're going to go downstairs and eat something. You're hungry. And uh, sure enough, I felt right as rain after I had a sandwich. And, uh, and so, <laughs> so this is what the Apostle Peter is saying. He's saying, husbands, get a PhD in understanding your spouse. Because when you do, you're going to know what pushes her buttons, what pushes his buttons, and, and, and what will invite conflict and what will diffuse it. And, um, but if we insist on reacting to what she said or what he did and, and not be the grown-up who stops the cycle, then like the Shulamite, there's going to be pain and there's going to be hurt. Marriage is about cultivating the relationship, but it doesn't grow by itself. Uh, let me explain that. When we moved into our first house years ago, we had, it was a little house, but we had this kind of flower bed uh, right by the front door. 
And I decided, like, hey, let's spruce this up. And so I bought some plants. I bought some soil. And, um, and, and I thought, it looks so nice. And within a week, it was all dead. And I did this a couple of times. And I told my wife, I'm like, listen, I'm sorry to tell you this, but our house is built on an ancient Indian burial ground, and nothing can live here. And uh, we may have to move. And I, I think I may have seen too many horror movies in the 80s, um, th- which is what led me to that. So when we moved into our second house. I tried to do the same thing, and everything died. And I just said, wow, this burial ground really extends through much of the Miramar area. And so... And, and the reason was, I was under the impression that, that gardening is a one-time activity. So what I did was, is I hired a landscaper to redo the, the landscaping in the front of our house. And he's like, so what are you looking to do? And I said, here's what I think we should do. Let's rip everything out and let's start over. And he's like, why would you want to do that? You have beautiful plants in the front of your house. They just need some love. I said, okay, that's fine. But I want a beautiful front yard that requires zero work from me. He's like, don't worry, it's going to be totally manageable. So they came in, they took out the old soil, put in some new ones, they took out some plants that weren't really working, they moved some around, they added some new plants, and then, um, then he's like, all right, come out, and it was amazing. It really looked amazing. And um, they found this giant rock, then they, they made it like a centerpiece of the front of our house. I'm like, where was that? He's like, it was buried in the ground. I'm like, well, who knew? Uh, Maybe that was one of the headstones of the Indian burial ground. Who knew? Um, And so anyway, so he says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to come out every day for 30 days and water these plants. Then after that, I need you to come three or four times a week and water the plants. Then once a week, I need you to come out and pull all the weeds. And I'm like, no, that's not what I wanted. I wanted beauty without any effort. And you have given me a part-time job. And, and, and I said, and, 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 and I, I wanted to do nothing. That's the point. And he said, yeah, that's not going to work. And he says, everything that's beautiful needs investment. And I was like, whoa. And I told him, like, hey, are you interested in doing some marriage counseling? I have several families I'd love to send your way. I've been trying to tell people this for years. Because, listen, marriage is gardening. You need to cultivate the relationship. You've got to do things that draw you closer together and bring out the beauty. Because when you pull weeds and uproot dead flowers, you aren't fighting with your garden, you're fighting for your garden. And when conflict arises, you need to set a goal of resolution rather than reacting or even worse, just saying, oh, I'm just trying to win. Now, here's the interlude of the story. Is that after the altercation with the city watchman, She talks to her friends. The Shulamite talks to her friends who in the story are called the daughters of Jerusalem. And she says, could you go and find my my husband and tell him that I'm I'm looking for him? This is what what she says, verse 8. She says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. And this is their response in verse 9. What is your beloved more than any other beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than any other beloved that you so charge us? You know what they're saying? They're like, what's so great about him? Isn't he the guy that you didn't want to get your feet dirty four verses ago? Um, But see, she has changed her perspective on him. And what follows now is what she believes about him. Look at uh, verse 10. She says this, my beloved is white and ruddy chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. 
His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set in barrel. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now, if you pause there, last thing I want to tell you. This is rule of conflict number three, and that is speak good words. It's so powerful, and then the Shulamite gives what I believe is probably the best description of marriage. She says, this is my beloved, this is my lover, and this is my friend. She has now remembered what is most important. In the midst of the conflict, she has realized we're on the same team, and if only one of us wins, we both lose. And that's why we have to speak good words to each other. And by the way, we speak good words to each other not just because it's good for them and because we live in a world that is completely encouragement depleted. We speak good words because it's important to vocalize it. We need to hear it. We need to say it. Lots of times we think things and we don't don't say it. Listen, you've got to say it. That's why Solomon would say in Proverbs 27, an open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. So how do we speak good words to each other? Three ways. Number one is this, catch your spouse doing what's right. Listen, it's easy to point out what's wrong, but if you want to transform your marriage, encourage your spouse when they're doing the right things. And this is just, by the way, a lesson in human nature. People move in the direction where there's affirmation and encouragement. This is why, and if you have this relationship with your parents, every time you call your parents, they yell at you for not calling more, which makes you not want to call more. And then every time you do, they yell at you. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. What they need to have is when you call your parents, you have a nice conversation. Then you hang up like, man, I would like to do that more. Because people always move in the direction of acceptance and encouragement. Solomon would say it this way in Proverbs 12. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. When we are sloppy with words, and listen, words are my life. And, and, and I, this is just one of the things that I've noticed. A lot of times we're just sloppy with our words, and it causes more problems. And listen, if your spouse comes home and they've got a mad look, and you say, what's your problem? Now, okay, instead of saying, what's your problem? What if you say, honey, what's troubling you? You see how that's the same thing, and yet it's completely not the same thing? Because your, your tone is different. It's not like you, you are a problem. It's something is troubling you. Um, you ever talk to someone and then, um, uh, you know, maybe you're pouring your heart out and then they say these words everyone wants to hear. You know what your problem is? Like, please tell me more. Um, no, like, no crisis was ever solved with that opening sentence. Um, but, you know, but instead if you say, hey, I'm so sorry that's happening to you. If it's okay, can I share something that I've learned that really helped me? It may help you too. See how that's the same thing, but it's not the same thing? When we are careless with our words, many times... Um, we do it because we don't realize how powerful they are. I, I was out with my son um, probably a couple years ago, and uh, I was telling Xander a story, and he's like, Dad, I don't remember, but you know I have a bad memory. And, and I'm like, why would you say that? And he goes, because I forget things. I'm like, Xander, everybody forgets things. That doesn't mean you forget everything. And, uh, and he's like, no, 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 I, I have a bad memory. I'm, and, and I said, Xander, if you had a bad memory, how would you remember that you had a bad memory? It's like I went full inception on him. 
And he's like, that's a good, I don't know, but that really stuck. My son is now our family historian because everything that happens, he remembers with total recall to a point where now it bothers me uh, because he was reminding me um, a little while back about something. He's like, remember you said that thing and it involved me giving him and his sisters money. And I'm like, I have no recollection of that, your honor. And, uh, and he's like, yeah, I remember dad, we were in the kitchen and you were eating a donut and you, you started and you said, I probably shouldn't be eating this second donut. But I'm like, stop, how much do you need? But stop recounting my questionable life choices back to me. And, and listen, if we're only speaking death into our marriages and our kids and our relationships and our friendships, we shouldn't be surprised when there's no life. Listen, encourage each other with your words. Catch your spouse doing what's right and encourage them and watch what happens. Listen, this is a rule of your home. What gets praised gets repeated. And that is just a fact. All right, here's the second one. And guys, brace yourself. Throw sarcasm out of your house. No man, no man has ever married the woman of his dreams. And when you ask her, why did you marry him? She's like, I just fell in love with this biting sarcasm. Like, no, 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 no guy ever got the girl because of his biting sarcasm, but he has lost the girl many times because of sarcastic comments that cut. The Apostle Paul would say it this way, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. As I mentioned earlier, we live in an encouragement-depleted world. Spend five minutes on social media, and it's sarcasm, snarky comments, and just outright rage, and then a few people who are just totally unhinged. Um, listen, and I'll be honest, I used, to be, uh, I used to be extremely sarcastic, and I just saw what it was doing, and I made a decision that I was going to eliminate sarcasm uh, from my life, and I did. I stopped being sarcastic, and, um, and you know, it's, and people are like, how did you stop being sarcastic? I'm going to tell you, so you might want to write it down. Every time I thought something that was sarcastic, I didn't say it. <laughs> that was the first step. Every time. For the first week, I barely spoke. I was just walking around with a smile because everything I thought of, I'm like, yeah, it's not going to work. And then there's other things, yeah, it's not going to work either. And so, now, um, and then, but here's, here's, can I tell you what happened when I eliminated sarcasm from my life? Joy exploded all, of around, all around me. Joy exploded in my home. It exploded around me and ex it exploded within me. Listen, and the, it all started with training yourself to speak differently. And by the way, you have the power to do this. Any level of self-control, you can just decide, yeah, I'm not gonna say that. This is why, and it's in your notes in 2 Corinthians 10, here's what the, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul says this. Um, the scriptures tell us that we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. You know what that means? He, Paul is saying this, everything I think, I put it in jail, and it's guilty until proven innocent. So it's like, hey, I was, whoa, slow down! It's behind bars. What were you gonna say? I was gonna say, hi, how you doing? All right, you're out of here, you're good. You can say that. And that, but you gotta just, you gotta throttle that back. And you know what happens when you take every thought captive? Listen, sarcasm only knows how to destroy and you're trying to build. So you gotta get that tool out of your toolbox. This is why, once again, Solomon, and uh, by the way, I quote Proverbs so much when we talk about these topics because there is no better book in the Bible about words and about what words do. 
than, than Proverbs. But, it's, but he says this, the words of the godly encourage many, but fools are destroyed by their lack of common sense. All right, last thing, and then we're done. And, uh, and that is this, if you're a note taker, someone has to go first. In chapter six, remember she tells the daughters of Jerusalem, go out and try to find my beloved. And then they find him and they say he's in his garden. So she goes to his garden and he sees her and look at what he says when he sees her. He says this, oh my love, you are as beautiful as Terza, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me for I, they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. By the way, um, this is romantic language back then. You compare your wife to a goat now, I am not responsible for what happens. So she like throws something at you and it's like, it's biblical, honey. And so anyway, um, but your, your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from their washing. You know what that means? Her teeth are, wi- uh, your, her teeth are white and none of them is barren among them. That means, honey, your teeth are white and you have them all which is great. And so, <laughs> honey, I love the fact that you have all your teeth and that you haven't allowed the cavity creeps to wreak havoc. And so, but he says this, he says, like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. Listen, these are the exact words that Solomon spoke to her on their wedding night in chapter four. She has said good words about him and now he responds with good words to her. And I know that this can be difficult when you don't know how to have healthy conflict. You say things you regret, and then later they can't be erased after they've been spoken. And then when the next conflict happened, all the hurts come back from every previous conflict, and it makes it difficult to move on. And listen, while it's difficult, you can't live there. We can't keep having the same type of conflict and then wonder why our marriage is stuck in the mud. We have to commit to change, to be the people God created us to be. And the only thing that you can do is humble yourself, ask forgiveness of your spouse, and say, I'm going to prove that I've changed by the transformed life that I live. This is why I love how it ends in verses 12 and 13. It gives us this beautiful picture of a couple that's forgiven and reconciled. In verse 12, he says, I want you to come sit with me in my chariot. It's a picture of not just reconciliation, but public prominence as they're seen together. And then he says that they were like two opposing armies that are now dancing. I just, I absolutely love that picture. Uh, Years ago, my wife wanted to go to a a dance class. So we took a salsa class together. And if I can just be really honest, I was really good. And um, I was so good and took to it so quickly, my wife got very frustrated with me. And, uh, And I told her, I'm like, honey, I'm Cuban. This is in my DNA. Even though I'd never done it before, the ability to dance salsa is in my DNA. I could probably build a raft that'll take us from Cuba to Key West too. That's in my DNA as well. So anyway, but but (laughs) here's what dancing will teach you. Work, my wife has to do the exact opposite of what I do. If my left foot moves forward, her right foot has to move back. If I, if I move back, she has to move forward. And when we do, even though we are opposite, there's harmony and there's beauty. Listen, the goal of marriage isn't to make your wife the replica of you. Trust me, it would be horrifying to be married to yourself. The goal of marriage is to understand that some of the differences that we have are because we are d- different by design. And when we work through the other differences that we have the right way, there's beauty and there's harmony. 
and you'll be able to say to the person that you're married to, holding hands next to each other, you're able to say what the Shulamite said, this is my lover, this is my friend. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for that. Thank you for that promise that we can have reconciliation and peace and joy when we learn how to reconcile conflict. We thank you for the promise that this could be our beloved, that this could be our friend. So we thank you for that. And God, I pray for every couple in this room that you would do your good work in them, that you'd work in them, that you'd work through them, that you would work for them as they seek to have harmony and joy in their marriage. We prayed in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.